Oh, yeah, and I appreciate Mike filling in for me last week on very short notice. We got the notice of Mom's death on Wednesday and left Saturday morning, and Mike was very gracious to fill in, and I hear it was pretty good, and I appreciate Jim's not here this morning either, uh, but I appreciate him filling in the week before when we were uh, gone up for uh, Gabriel's graduation. So uh, thank you for everybody who filled in, and I'm sure all you guys were, guys were as hard on them as you are on me, so I appreciate that too. Uh, just you know, I want other people to understand how hard it is to deal with this class. So, but. <laughs> he gave you dollar bills, really? On Mother's Day. Only some of you. I'm gonna have. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to have a talk with Jim. I can't afford this. <laughs> oh, that's great. Good. Well, uh, the book of Romans. I remember in uh, about 19... Oh, this is a long time ago. 1963, 64, somewhere back in there. I was, uh, I was in high school at the time and we had just moved to uh, Colorado Springs. And my dad moved out there to help uh, get a church started. And uh, we started meeting first in a home and then eventually built a, they built a church. But, but uh, So we were meeting in a home at a time. I was probably a sophomore, maybe a junior. Uh, and, uh, and it was my first opportunity to hear the book of Romans taught. Now, of course, I grew up in a Christian home and so I'd always heard things said about Romans or passages uh, talked about or preached or whatever. But... But this was the first time I ever sat through a study of the book of Romans. And to be honest with you, I only remember the introduction. (laughs) Uh, Hopefully you guys will remember more than the introduction of this study. But I only remember the introduction. And the reason I remember it, it always stuck with me, because of something that this fellow said. And I don't remember if this was a regular member of the church who was teaching this study or if it was a guest speaker that came in and taught the series. I, I, I don't remember any of that. But I remember that he talked about how difficult the book of Romans is to understand and, and that really only spiritually mature people would ever understand the book of Romans. And uh, that was my perception of the book of Romans for many years, unfortunately. And I think oftentimes many of us have that idea of Romans. Uh, for one reason or another, but uh, it, it took years before I realized that was not the case. Actually, it was I had been teaching the Bible for several years before I ever ventured to teach the Book of Romans because I was sure it was over my head. And uh, but uh, eventually, I came to realize that when Paul sat down and wrote the Book of Romans, he did not write it to a seminary. You know, he wrote it to a church. He wrote it to a group of believers in Rome and he wrote it for the reason or for the purpose to help them grow to maturity. So he didn't write assuming they were mature and that this was kind of the elite knowledge that only the elite and the theologically astute could ever comprehend or understand. But he wrote it to average Joes like you and I so that we would understand it and that we would 
become mature. <laughs> and uh, when I finally realized that, it made the book of Romans a whole lot less intimidating to me. Uh, and uh, so I think it helps us to, to just keep that in mind. And today we're just going to talk about some about these people to whom the book was written uh, and uh, their, their history and their experience and why Paul wrote the book and that sort of thing. And I'm going to keep calling it a book because I'm a creature of habit, but it's really not a book. It's a letter. And we'll talk about uh, the significance of that in, uh, in, in a few minutes. But uh, given what I just said about the book was, or the letter was written to believers to understand and to help them grow to maturity, I don't want to suggest that all of Romans is easy to understand. Uh, someone of no less standing than the Apostle Peter himself said there are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand which the unstable and the untaught distort to their own destruction. So, by saying that the book of Romans is written to average believers like you and me, I don't mean to imply that we're not going to have to work at this. That, uh, that it's just an easy book to read and understand. In some places, it's... it's remarkably easy to understand and but we will encounter some difficult places we will encounter some passages that you know just you're going to have to stop and do some thinking and we'll talk more about that uh, in a few minutes but uh, so it's it's not all easy to understand there will be difficulties and I can tell you up front, we're going to have some disagreements probably. We're not all going to agree on everything we talk about in Romans. Now, I'm sorry that you all will disagree with me at points and you won't understand or believe the truth as I teach it. But, uh, but we will probably have various points that which, well, I'm not sure Rick's quite got it right there. And that's okay. Uh, we're, you know, we, what we want to do is we want to think individually. We want to think as the Spirit is leading us each individually and, and hopefully we'll find, and I'm sure we will find that in the vast majority of the book, we're going to find great agreement. Uh, but there will be times when we'll probably go, oh, I'm not sure about that or whatever. So uh, that's all fine and good. But the book of Romans is, uh, is a really critical book, a very important book. It, we, you know, we just finished three years in the book of Genesis, and as we went through it, I think you saw how absolutely foundational the book of Genesis is to all of Christian theology. If you do not understand Genesis, you do not understand Christian theology. Uh, it's just foundational in, in so many aspects, the, the doctrine of the fall, the doctrine of faith, uh, and on and on and on and on and on. The book of Genesis is so foundational. Well... The book of Romans is kind of the New Testament equivalent of the book of Genesis. It is, a, it is, a, it is an extremely important book. Uh, Martin Luther said about the book, he said it is really the chief part of the New Testament. Now, I don't know if I'd go quite that far. I kind of think the Gospels are pretty important. <laughs> but, but it illustrates how great minds, and I'll give you a couple other quotes here in a moment, how great minds consider, have considered, great Christian minds have considered the book of Romans so critical and so important. And one of the reasons why I felt it was important for us to once again take time to go through it. Now, I have taught it in this class before, but that was about 15 years ago. How many guys were here when I taught this 15 years ago? <laughs> a couple hands go up, okay. So, it's been a while since we've looked at it. 
But it is, uh, as Luther said, a very important book in the New Testament. William Tyndale said a similar thing. William Tyndale was one of the first translators of the Bible into English, and he said the prince, it called it the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament, a light and a way into the whole of Scripture. His point being that, that really to understand the rest of Scripture, we need to understand Romans. And uh, John Calvin said, if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. So this is a, this is a critical book for us to understand. It's an important book for us to understand. It is in some places a little bit difficult to understand. In most places it is not. Uh, but it is a book that is accessible to all of us. And we can all understand it if we'll apply some of the things that, uh, that I'm going to talk about uh, later this morning. One of the things that's important for us to know, even with what I said about how important this book is and the role that it plays in Christian theology, is Romans is not a systematic theology. And what I mean by that is that Romans does not present, is not a summary or a presentation of all of Christian theology. Uh, you, can go to, uh, you can go to a Christian bookstore or get on the internet and shop and you can find systematic theologies written by various theologians. And what a systematic theology does is it, it attempts to take the whole of the Christian doctrine, all the important things we believe about the fall of man and the nature of God and who is Christ and the doctrine of atonement and the, and the doctrine of end times and, and, and sets them out in some kind of a systematic way so that we can understand them. Systematic theologies are very helpful uh, uh, all of us have some, some kind of a system. It may be a pretty sloppy system, but all of us have some kind of a system of theology. And systematic theologians attempt to make those systems coherent and rational and usable. And they are helpful. But Romans is not a systematic theology. With as much theology as is in the book of Romans, there are a lot of things that are not. There's virtually nothing said about the end times. There's nothing said about about uh, uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, there's nothing said about a number of issues uh, uh, that are very important and critical uh, to, uh, to our theology. There's no real exposition of the doctrine of the Trinity or any number of things that we could think about. So it's not a systematic theology, but what it does contain is critical, as, as these quotes that I've given you indicate, is really critical to our understanding of, of Scripture. Uh, of course, and we all probably know this by now, the, uh, this letter or this epistle was written from the Apostle Paul and it was written to the believers who were uh, gathered together in various homes and churches, meetings in the city of Rome. It was written probably about 57 A.D. towards the close of Paul's third missionary journey. Okay, uh, he had he had made three missionary journeys. You're familiar with those, I assume, from the book of Acts. Uh, and this was towards the close of the third missionary journey, and he found himself staying for about three months in the city of Corinth. And almost all commentators are in agreement that this letter was written from Corinth 
uh, at that period of time. And as we go through the, the book of Romans, we'll see that he refers to some things that he has done in the past and that he is about to do. And those help us pinpoint exactly where in his life that came and, and those events uh, unfolded. And, and that helps us pin it down to be at the end of the third missionary journey. And we're fairly, uh, we can't pin down the exact year of his missionary journeys, but we're, we can get it down pretty close. And so it's pretty easy to, to uh, uh, detect here that this was written about 57 A.D. Excuse me. <coughs> fighting a bad throat the last couple of days. It's written about 57 A.D., but it may be a year or two either way, but it's somewhere in that time frame and you'll see why that becomes significant in a few minutes. Uh, it was written to, uh, as I say, it was written by Paul and next week we'll start in chapter 1, verse 1, uh, the first six verses and, <clears throat> and we'll talk more about Paul and who he was and where, what he's, where he's writing from and, and that sort of thing next week. So we'll explore more of the who wrote it next week. The following week, we will explore more of the to whom he wrote it, the Romans, okay? Because in verse 7 of chapter 1, he begins to talk about the Romans and what he thinks about them and what they've been doing and that sort of thing. <coughs> so, excuse me. So, we'll explore that uh, in much more detail in a couple of weeks about the Romans. But there are some things about the Roman church that I want to talk about today because they are foundational to our understanding of the book of Romans. <coughs> First of all, we don't have a lot of, of concrete data on the origin or the beginning of the church in Rome. But by things that are written in Scripture, it's possible to kind of paste together a picture that gives us some idea of the dynamics of what was going on in the church in Rome and will give us some understanding of why Paul wrote the letter that he wrote. One of the first things I asked myself, excuse me, one of the first things I asked myself about six months ago when I started doing this preparation is, why did Paul write this letter to this church? You know, why wasn't this letter written to Corinth? Why wasn't this letter written to Philippi? Why wasn't this letter written to... Thessalonica, there are all kinds. Paul wrote many letters to many different churches, only some of which we have, <coughs> uh, at least copies of nowadays. But the question came to my mind, why did Paul write this letter and why did he write it to Rome? And one of the things that we'll explore today is some of the reasons for that. Okay. But the nearest, way, nearest thing we can detect about the beginning of the church in Rome was it probably began in Jerusalem. It probably began in Pentecost, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Because you'll remember in Acts chapter 2 that uh, Luke, in writing the book of Acts, records for us a number of people who were living, and he lists them there in, I think, beginning about verse 6 or so, there chapter 2 in Acts. He begins to list all these various peoples who he says were living in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the significance of that, of course, is that the Holy Spirit came uh, uh, upon the apostles and they began preaching uh, the gospel and began preaching about Christ to all these people from all these various points of the world. And the point was that they would then 
leave Jerusalem after Pentecost and return to their homes and take the gospel with them. And in that long list of people from all these various parts of the world, at the very end there in verse 10 of chapter 2, he lists visitors from Rome. Now, it's kind of interesting to me. I'm not doing a study of Acts. I'm not going to explore this in depth. But it says at the beginning of the list, he says people were living in Jerusalem and he lists all these people. But when he gets to the people from Rome, he says they were visitors from Rome. (coughs) So it's almost as if Luke is stressing and it's perhaps because he was writing the book of Acts to a Roman official for the benefit of a Roman official that these people were only visiting in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. And uh, does anybody have that passage, Acts 2.10? Is anybody looking at it? Uh, how, does he dis- what, how does he describe these people from Rome in the next phrase? Both Jews and proselytes. Both Jews and proselytes. Now, I, I think, it's not exactly clear, I think that phrase actually refers to all these various groups of people. But clearly, at a minimum, it refers to the people from Rome. That there were both Jews and proselytes. And what he means by that is that there were people there who were ethnically Jewish, practicing the Jewish faith, and there were proselytes that would be Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. So they're not ethnically Jewish. They are Gentiles by birth and by genealogy, but they are practicing the Jewish faith, and so they have come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. So these two kinds of people have come to Pentecost, and they hear the gospel, and they get saved, and then presumably return to Rome. So most commentators assume that the origin of the church in Rome was these people returning from Pentecost who had been converted under the preaching of Peter and the other apostles uh, at Pentecost. And they returned to Rome and they began to worship Christ uh, in Rome, but almost certainly in a completely Jewish context. So most likely they were meeting in their synagogues because these are all... Jews in the sense of their faith or the practice of their faith. So you have Gentile proselytes and you have ethnic Jews, but they're all Jewish in their religious origin. And now they've come to realize that Christ is the Messiah. And so they come back to Rome and they begin uh, they begin to worship uh, Christ and 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 uh, and teach the Christian gospel within the context, apparently in the synagogues. <clears throat> well, that goes on for about. 15 years and then things get a little tense Uh, and uh, by this time there's a guy who's emperor by the name of Claudius and uh, and and Claudius gets concerned because there is a disturbance in Rome that's associated with the instigation of a person by the name of Crestus okay Well, most commentators assume that that's a misspelling or a reference in the secular literature to Christ. So, in other words, when you read in Acts chapter 18, in the first part of Acts chapter 18, about Prisca and Aquila coming to Corinth, having been expelled from Rome by Claudius, that's what it's referring to. It happened in 49 AD that Claudius was having this problem with this uproar within the Jewish community that was caused by this personality by the name of Crestus. <coughs> and so he just expelled all the Jews from Rome. He made all the ethnic Jews leave Rome. And Prisca and Aquila were ethnic Jews. And so they were forced to leave Rome. And they go to Corinth. And when Paul comes to Corinth on his 
second missionary journey, he finds them there and he actually lives in their home and they become a, a, a critical part of his ministry in the years to follow. But these are ethnic Jewish believers in Christ. Okay? So, all the Jews have been expelled from Rome because of this disruption within the society and within the culture that's caused by this, presumably, this uproar over this Christ or Christus. Okay? So, you can kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together and see what's going on. You've got people coming back from Pentecost, coming back from Jerusalem. They now believe that Christ is the Messiah. They come into the synagogues. They begin to teach that and and promote that teaching in the synagogues. And over a period of years, this becomes an increasingly hostile situation. And it becomes so disruptive, it comes to the attention of the emperor, and he sees the only way to, to, to restore the peace to, to the city of Rome is to evict all the Jews. So he kicks all the Jews out. So now you've had this church, which has been going on for about 15 years. I say church, but it's probably been meeting in the synagogues. You have this... Uh, this uh, Christian church which has been made up of Jews and Gentile converts to Jews who now have been converted to Christianity and they're all meeting in the synagogues and they're worshiping Christ and they're doing so alongside of other Jews and alongside of other synagogues that are still uh, still practicing Judaism as it's always been practiced. Okay, And this eventually becomes so volatile and then all the Jews are expelled suddenly from Rome. What does that leave you in Rome? Pardon? A Gentile church. Okay? Suddenly you have a Gentile church. That's all you have. All the Jews are gone. And so all this Jewish, or most of this Jewish influence, has suddenly left the church. And now you have only Gentiles. There are no Jews in Rome. So as the church continues over the next several years, its process of evangelization, what happens to the church? What kind of people get saved? Pardon? More Gentiles. Okay. So the church becomes, over the next several years, more and more Gentiles. Now, this eviction only lasted for about five years because Claudius died in 54 AD. <coughs> he died in 54 AD, and apparently quite shortly after that, the Jews were free to return to Rome. So, you have a period of about five years there where you have an essentially Gentile church. All the new converts in that period of time are Gentile converts. All the leaders of the church are Gentile leaders. Okay? And then after about five years, Claudius dies and the Jews begin to return. And we know they return because when we read Acts, uh, Romans chapter 15 and chapter 16, where Paul begins to list the names of a lot of people in Rome at the time and send his greetings to them, he lists a number of Jews, including Prisca and Aquila. So now Prisca and Aquila are back in Rome. So we know the Jews have returned to Rome. And as I suggested, the letter was written in about 57 A.D. So we know that by 57 A.D., the Jews are back in Rome, or at least some Jews are back in Rome. Okay. Now this is the background and this is the setting for the writing of the book of Romans. That you have a church which began 
began in its origin for its first 15 years or so to be to be uh, predominantly a Jewish church, much like you had in Jerusalem in the very early years of the church in Acts in the first chapters of Acts. So it's a predominantly Jewish church practicing all the Jewish rituals and ceremonies and holidays and all that sort of thing. But then suddenly the church becomes a Gentile church with Gentile leaders and Gentile converts. And it's this way for about five or six years. And to survive, it has to figure out how to survive as a Gentile church. Then all of a sudden, you bring back into the church some of these Jews. I don't know how many of them, but you bring some back in. What happens? Conflict, questions, difficulties, okay? Where do the Jews fit into this whole thing? And so we begin to get, uh, at this point, we begin, we, we begin to get a number of, uh, a number of questions uh, begin to arise. What, what is the relationship of the Mosaic Law to the Gospel? What, what is the place of the Jews in God's plan? Is there any advantage to being a Jew? You know, what, what advantage does the Jew have? Paul asked that question very explicitly in the book of Romans. What, what was one to think about God's promises to the Jews? Are those promises still valid or, or, or what? Uh, did God choose the Jews in some special sense? And if he did, what happened to that choice? Because things have seemed to go really wrong, you know? So these are some of the questions you ask. What, and what about, what about other people who have different scruples than I have? So here I am, I'm a Gentile, and you know, I don't have any problems with eating certain kind of food, and, and I don't have any problems with you know, this day or that day, and suddenly these Jews come back into the church and they make a really big thing out of the Sabbath day, or they make a really big thing about the food that you eat. And, and what do we do in the church when we have people with different kinds of scruples about things like that? These are just a few of the questions that the Church of Rome is suddenly confronted with. And Paul, who is very obvious that he knows many of these people, because when we get to the end of the book, we'll see all the greetings back and forth, that he's very familiar with people in Rome. He knows them. He knows where they meet. He knows the homes they meet in. Uh, So he's very familiar with these people. So he knows these situations. He's aware of these questions that are being wrestled with. So as we begin to study the, this letter that Paul wrote in, in about 57 AD, we're going to see that the letter is profoundly colored by these kind of issues that Paul knows that the church in Rome is struggling with and wrestling with. And so some of the questions that we confront and some of the passages that we confront in the, in, the, in the book of Romans, as we study it, we're, we'll have light shed on them by this context of this confusion and uncertainty and maybe even to some degree conflict that's going on in the church of Rome. And that may help us to understand some things in some of these passages that may otherwise be fairly obscure to us. So that's why I take time for us to think about this and lay this foundation. And I don't expect you to remember all this stuff right off the top of your head. So we'll bring it up from time to time as we go through Romans. We'll remember and remind ourselves of some of these things as we go 
through Romans. Uh, I have mentioned that that the book is a is a le- is a letter and not a book, and I'll keep calling it a book because I'm a creature of habit. Okay, but it is really a letter and not a book. What's the difference between a letter and a book? Okay, it's a direct communication. Usually you have something you want to say to a specific person. Okay, If you publish a book, you're wanting everybody to hear about it. Okay, what else? Okay, oftentimes the length, although this gets to be fairly lengthy here. Uh, one of the longer epistles in, in, in the book or in the, in the Bible. Uh, pardon? It's personal. Yes, it's, he's thinking of personal people and personal situations, and you are when you typically when you write a letter. But another thing is that when you write a book, you usually have a point you want to make, right? If you write a book, you've got you've got some some idea, you know, and it may take you three or four hundred or six hundred pages to get it done. Uh, if it were me, it'd take six hundred. Okay, but but you have some point that you're trying to make. When you write a letter, you may have one dominant point you're trying to make and maybe the reason you wrote the letter. But on the other hand, oftentimes when you write a letter, you've got a lot of different things you want to say, right? You want to talk about this for a while, and you want to talk about that for a while, and then you've got something else you want to mention, and so you mention several different things, okay? Well, this is a letter. It's not a book. But those of us who study the Bible and study Scripture and try and make a discipline of it, we're just kind of compulsive uh, about every time we open a book of the Bible or a letter in the Bible, we want to find the theme. What is the theme of the book? Okay, that's just something theologians and Bible scholars and Bible students do. That's just, that's just part of our DNA. We look for a theme. But what was interesting to me as I was reading one commentator after another over the last few months in preparation for this study is they all kept coming up with different themes. And one commentator, he says, well, the theme of Romans is the righteousness of God. Now, he's got a good argument there. It comes up in verse uh, 17 of chapter 1. It's a very important theme in Romans, as we'll see in a few minutes. It was a life-transforming theme in the life of one of the, one of the reformers. So this whole idea of the righteousness of God comes up repeatedly in the book of Romans, and it's a very important concept. Okay? But then I read another commentator, and he says, well, no, it's not the righteousness of God. It's the relationship of the law to the gospel. And he's got a good argument because this idea of law comes up over and over and again in Romans. It just repeatedly comes up. In fact, the word law is used in a host of different ways in the book of Romans. So when you read the book of Romans and you encounter the word law, L-A-W, the first thing you have to ask yourself is how is Paul using it? Because sometimes he talks about the law as a reference to the Mosaic law. Sometimes he talks about about law in general, which is just kind of our conscience and our moral sense of what is right and wrong. Sometimes he talks about the law of sin and death. Another place he talks about the law of faith. In another place he talks about the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Okay, so the idea of law permeates uh, particularly the first portion, the first half of Romans, but 
is it the theme? And then another guy says, well, you know, it's not righteousness and it's not law, it's faith. Faith is the theme. And he's got a good argument. I mean, he spends all of chapter 4 talking about faith and using Abraham as an example. And in other places, he stresses this whole importance of faith. And another guy says, well, it's not law and it's not faith and it's not righteousness, but it's the unfolding plan of redemption is, God, is Paul's theme here in Romans. Well, after I get to about the third or the fifth, fourth or fifth commentator, I'm starting to go, None of these guys agree on a theme. Maybe there's not a theme. Or maybe there's not one theme. Okay? I think there are probably several themes that we find woven through the book. And each of these ones I've mentioned, and some others, you, we will find are dominant subjects that come up over and over again and help us understand and interpret the book. But I think it's important that we not just nail down one theme. And the reason for that is if you nail down one theme and it's not the theme, then your interpretive grid by which you're interpreting the book of Romans is a little bit askew. And you're going to make mistakes. Right? So, so I think it's helpful for us to understand this is a letter that kind of flows. And Paul has several things on his mind that he wants to do and several things that he wants to communicate. And they're all interrelated, but I don't think there's one interpretive dominant theme that we're going to use to interpret all the passage. But we're going to seek to, to, to be sensitive to all these various threads, important threads that run through the book as we go through the book. So that's just something to keep in mind. It's a letter. It's not a book. Uh, one of the questions I already brought this up is why did Paul write this letter? Why did he write this letter to this church? Well, I've already talked to you a little bit about what's going on in the church, and and so that brings us now to the question of why does Paul, why did Paul write the the letter, uh, the epistle of Romans? And one of the things we'll discover early on as we begin in the first chapter is that Paul had an agenda. He had something he wanted to get done. Now, I don't know how many of you took my exhortation to read through the book of Romans before we started this study, but if you did, let me just throw this question out. Maybe you remember this from your earlier, uh, earlier studies of Romans. What was it that Paul had in his mind that he was looking forward to doing, which was part of his story in the book of Romans? Do you remember? Okay, he wanted to come visit them and then do what? After he visited them, what did he want to do? He wanted to go to Spain, okay? This is the Apostle Paul. We'll talk more about him next week. But this is the Apostle Paul who's always got some vision for reaching somebody for Christ, okay? And he always wanted to go, as he says in another place, he always wanted to go where Christ was not named and to build not on another man's foundation. So he wants to go somewhere where Christ has not been named and nobody else has been working and start a new thing, okay? That's Paul's deal, okay? And he considers himself the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he has this vision to go to Spain. Now, up until this time, his kind of home base has been Jerusalem and Antioch, which are on the eastern end of the Mediterranean. I've got to get my bearings straight here. But on the eastern end of the Mediterranean, and he used them kind of as his base as he reached out first to Asia Minor and to Illyricum and to Greece and to all, all those areas just right around there in the eastern half 
of the Mediterranean region. Okay, so Antioch and Jerusalem served as his base, and he'd he'd go out and he'd do his one of his missionary journeys, and then he'd go back to his base. Okay, but now he's getting ready to go clear out to the other end of the Mediterranean. He's getting ready to go clear out to Spain, and he needs a new base. He needs a new strategic center from which to work, and he wants Rome to be that center. So it's his intention to come to Rome and to visit them. And he says to them, and to be helped by you on to Spain. So he wants them to be his helpers and his supporters to kind of slingshot him on out further to Spain. So he wants Rome to be his base. But if Rome is going to be his base, then he needs for them to be really united with him. He needs for them to be really in agreement with him and the thing that he's doing and the thing that he's preaching. And if you've got a church that's struggling with this whole issue of Jew and Gentile and what are their relationships and where does the law... If you've got a church that's struggling with all that, you need to get that resolved because you are a Jew who is a missionary to the Gentiles. And you want this church who is struggling with this Jew-Gentile issue, you want this church to be your base church from which you now reach out to the other end of the Mediterranean region. So one of the reasons that Paul is writing the book of Romans is to prepare the way for this church to be his foundation or his base as he reaches further. And that's going to necessitate him clearly addressing these questions uh, and these problems that are circulating within the Roman church. Okay, so so that's one of his reasons. Uh, the other thing is, he says, I, I, and we'll see this as we as we get started in Romans. He says, I want to bear fruit in your. So Paul has a clear idea that that not only does he want the Roman church to be kind of his base, but he really wants to get he wants to bear fruit there. He wants to see things happen out of his life in Rome. Okay, now the significant thing about that is that that indicates to us a little bit about the origin of the church and dispels some myths about the origin of the church. One is it makes it clear to us that the Roman church, with its origin, as I've already described to you, being these believers who apparently came back from Pentecost, one thing apparently the Roman church did not have was any prominent founding leader. Because if the Roman church had had a prominent founding leader, Paul would not have spoken the way he did about wanting to go there and bear fruit. Because Paul was not interested in building on another man's foundation. The other thing is, as we read through the book of Romans, we find no reference to any dominant personality who was obviously a leader or the leader in the Roman church. And this is significant because it indicates to us then that Peter was not the Bishop of Rome. Okay? Peter was not the Bishop of Rome. He apparently didn't get to Rome any sooner than Paul did. He did eventually get there so he could be killed. But he didn't. He wasn't the Bishop of Rome. He wasn't the founder of the church in Rome. If he were, Paul would have said something about it. And if he were, Paul would not have spoken of his intentions towards Rome in the way he spoke about it. Okay? So that's just something to keep in mind. Uh, 
Let me just make sure I'm up on my notes here. Uh, so, these are all just kind of some foundational things about the book of Romans. And, uh, and we'll just keep these things in our mind as we go forward. And next week, we'll start actually in chapter 1, verse 1. And we'll actually start expositing. But our first couple lessons, we'll be looking more in detail at Paul, who this guy is, what his heart was, how he was called of God, what was his apostleship, what was the apostle of. These are the kind of things that he talks about in those first few verses. And then the following week, he begins to talk about the Romans and why he's all excited about them and, and, and all that sort of thing. So we'll, we'll explore some of those things more in detail as we actually get into the text. But I just want to tell you, I want to tell you here at, uh, at the end, I just want to relate to you some stories about some people and their encounter with the book of Romans. And the first uh, story I want to tell you is about a guy who lived in the fourth century. And uh, he was born in, uh, actually, he was born in Africa, and he was born. Uh, to a man who was kind of a pretty rough character, a pretty rough individual. But his mother, whose name was Monica, by the way, his mother was a saint. And, and actually, I think, as I recall, I think she was actually eventually sainted. But at any rate, uh, in a Catholic sense, okay. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, he grew up pretty rough and... Uh, and uh, two things he loved. He loved sex and he loved drink. And they pretty much controlled his life. The guy was a genius. He was really intelligent. He was really smart. And he eventually became a, uh, a professor of rhetoric and literature. And he started in Carthage in Africa. And then he moved to Rome. And he taught in Rome for a while. And, and then he went to Milan uh, and, and he taught in Milan. And all the while, he was just living a life of debauchery. Uh, and all the while, his saintly mother was praying for his conversion. And, uh, and eventually he became more and more intrigued by this whole Christian thing. And it was fascinating to him. And when he was in Milan, he... He kind of fell under the influence of a famous early Christian by the name of Ambrose. And Ambrose was an eloquent preacher. And so this, uh, this young man, Aurelius, he used to go and listen to Ambrose preach because he just loved to hear the you honest. Know, he, he himself was a student and obviously a, a teacher. And so he enjoyed hearing this kind of eloquence and intelligence that, uh, that he heard from Bishop Ambrose. And, and so he would go and listen to it, and he fell under greater and greater conviction for his sin, but he could not free himself from his slavery to his lust. And it became more and more of a turmoil to him, and he kind of wanted to become a Christian, but he couldn't because he could not free himself from this, and he began to talk with his friends about it. And he tells in his in his biography that he wrote about his experience, he tells about this time that he was in Milan in 386 A.D. and he goes out into this garden and he is, he is just struggling with this issue and he has a copy of Scripture with him and he lays this copy of Scripture down and he goes out into this garden and his friend is 
there somewhere in the vicinity, but he leaves his friend and he goes out into this garden and he is so wrapped with guilt and so wrapped with his inability to turn from his sin and to turn to Christ. And he goes out and he falls on his face in the garden and he cries out to God and he says, God, how is this going to happen? And why can't you do this now? And he's, he's desperate. And then he hears a child's voice coming from a nearby house. And this child's voice says repeatedly, take up and read, take up and read. And it's like a chant from a children's game. But Aurelius couldn't remember any game like this that he played as a child. And so he just took this as the word from God. And he got up off his, he got up off the ground and he went back through the garden to the place where he had laid the scriptures down. And he decided that he would open the scriptures and read the first thing that came to his eyes. This is not a good Bible study technique, by the way. (laughs) Read the first thing that came to his eyes and take that as a word from God. And he picked it up and he opened to Romans chapter 13 and verse 13. And he read the following verses. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision in regard to its flesh. Aurelius Augustinius, otherwise known to us as Augustine of Hippo says it was if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart all the shadows of doubt were dispelled and he was converted and the church gained one of its greatest theologians of its early history Augustine of Hippo And then there was another man a number of centuries later. And this guy was raised within the Catholicism of the day in the early 16th century, late 15th and early 16th century. And he devoutly wanted to serve God and devoutly wanted to please God and wanted to go to heaven. And so he thought, if I want to go to heaven, the way to make sure I get to heaven is to become a monk. So he he became a monk in the cloister at Erfurt in Germany. And he was a monk to end all monks. He said later, he said, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. But he was racked with guilt. And the more devoutly and holy he lived his life, and the more things he forewent for the for the sake of pleasing God and honoring God and being acceptable to God, the harder he tried to please God, the more he felt condemned. And he, would, he became a great teacher. He became a great theologian. And he was assigned the position as the, as the teacher of Bible, a professor at Bible at one of the great new leading seminaries of the day. And one of the things that he ended up coming to teach 
in uh, about 1515 or so was the his assignment or his job was to teach the book of Romans. And he started working through and preparing to teach the book of Romans and he came to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where it talked about the righteousness of God and he said, I was just enraged. I was so angry at God because he was so righteous and there was no way I could be righteous like him. And he said, that verse made me hate God. This is a monk. This is a professor of the Bible. And he was, and everybody looked at him as this paragon of spirituality. And on the inside, he was racked with guilt and bitterness and a hatred of God and anger at God's righteousness. Until one day the Holy Spirit opened his eyes to the true meaning of Romans 1.17 and the righteousness of God. Martin Luther says later, he says, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt, were, excuse me, I got the wrong one. It's, whereas before, that was uh, uh, August in there, uh, this was Luther. He says, Whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. Well, if we go forward another couple centuries, there's another guy, and he lives in England, and he's another guy who just grows up in the church this is now the Protestant church, and he's very devout. Very, very, very devout. He comes from a very devout family. He had parents who loved God and prayed for their children, and so he grew up in this context. And he, and he wanted to serve God, and he wanted to preach the gospel, and he, uh, he uh, eventually, he, uh, he, when he went to Oxford, he joined, joined a group that actually his brother had started called the Holy Club. And eventually he excelled so well in, in all the spiritual disciplines of the Holy Club that after he became the leader of the Holy Club. And eventually in his passion for the things of God, he went as a missionary to America, to the, to the state of Georgia, to, to reach out to the settlers and particularly the Indians in Georgia. And he spent about two years in Georgia and his experience in Georgia was utter failure. Utter failure. And the reason was with all of his devotion and all of his passion and all of his knowledge of the Bible, he did not know Christ. And so as he and his brother returned on the ship from Georgia to England two years later, he was completely disillusioned and came to the realization that he himself was not in a right standing with God and did not know how to get there. Sometime after that, on the 24th of May in 1738, he was invited to a Bible study conducted by a group of Christians called Moravians on Aldersgate Street in London. And he, he doesn't want to go. He really does not want to go. But he goes. And he attends this Moravian Bible study on Aldersgate Street. And John Wesley says this, 
at about a quarter before nine, while he was, uh, excuse me, uh, the context is they are, at this particular Bible study, they are reading the preface to Luther's commentary on Romans. So they haven't, gotten to, they haven't even gotten to the substance of Romans yet. They're just reading Luther's commentary. Okay, remember what we just said about Luther? Okay. Now, this is Luther's commentary on Romans, and they are reading the preface to Luther's commentary on Romans. And John Wesley says this, At about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed I felt I did trust Christ, Christ alone, for my salvation. An assurance was given to me that He had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Well, and then we come forward into the late 19th and early 20th century, and there's a gentleman in... Switzerland. And this gentleman has been raised and trained in theology in the context of the German theologians of the late 19th and early 20th century, which if you know anything about it, it's just it was it was liberalism, theological liberalism gone berserk. And theological liberalism is steeped in this whole idea of the goodness of man and the progress of man and the, and the ability to shape and improve societies by the sheer goodness and potential of man. And the problem with theological liberalism of the late 19th century and early 20th century is it ran smack dab head on into the First World War. And man no longer looked good. And this gentleman was writing his own commentary on the book of Romans. As he says, I could with very little imagination hear the shells bursting to my north, to the north, as he's writing there in Switzerland. And as he's writing the, his commentary on the book of Romans, he discovers the true nature of man. And he discovers how sinful and how utterly, completely wicked and helpless man is apart from Christ. And he writes his commentary and he publishes his commentary on the book of Romans, Karl Barth, in 1918. A Catholic theologian by the name of Karl Adam says about Karl Barth's commentary on Romans later, he says, it fell like a bombshell on the theologian's playground. These are just four stories of four men whom you've probably heard of most, if not all of these guys before, whose lives were transformed by their encounter with the book of Romans. And so as we start this book, I think these guys are just a few examples. But the Christian church is packed full of people, both great and small, whose lives have been transformed by this book. It would be a tremendous blessing, would it not, 
if our own lives were transformed in a similar way by this book. There's a quote in, uh, forgive me for doing this, but there's a quote in The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> when Bilbo says to Frodo, he says, it's a dangerous business going out your door. You step onto the road and if you don't keep your feet, there's no telling where you might be swept off to. And if you know the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit stories, you know the significance of that quote. But there's some truth to that. <laughs> I found that out in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> It's a dangerous thing. F.F. Bruce, one of the leading uh, Bible scholars, evangelical Bible scholars of the last century, said this about Romans. He says, there is no saying what will happen when people begin to study the letter to the Romans. So let those who have read thus far be prepared for the consequence of reading further. You have been warned. So, the question that I ask myself then, just as we close, is uh, what do I take from all this? Now, I always like to have some application when I stand up here and teach. Application for myself and to help you with application. There are four things that I hope that we will do as we approach the book of Romans. Four things that we will give attention to. And one is understanding. We cannot, we cannot grasp the meaning of the book of Romans if we don't take time to do things like we've done today. Get the background, get the information, get the data so that we understand what's going on and what Paul is talking about. But we also are going to need to be diligent. As I said, there are some parts that are hard to understand. And even the parts that aren't particularly hard to understand are still going to require some diligence. One... One quote I heard many years ago was, God does not reveal himself to the casual seeker. And while that's not entirely true, some of us have God revealed himself sometimes when we've been totally oblivious. But in general, it's true that God does not reveal himself to the casual or the sloppy seeker. If you want to understand Romans, you're going to have to work at it. It's, it's not written for theologians. It's not written to a seminary. But you're still going to have to work at it. Okay? It's going to require diligence. The second thing is, or third thing is, it's going to require some carefulness. Now, I distinguish between diligence and carefulness in this. I can be very diligent in digging a ditch and do a lot of hard work, and it can still be the wrong ditch in the wrong place, and it can still cave in on me. All right? So when I dig my ditch, I have to not only make sure that I work hard at digging the ditch, but I do it carefully. And as Peter said about Paul's writings, there are things that are hard to understand, which he says the unstable and the untaught distort to their own destruction. So, as we go through Romans, we want to be very careful not to use our preconceptions and our, and our feelings or whatever to just kind of pull things out of the air, but to very carefully handle the Word of God in order that our lives could be changed like these other guys we've just been talking about. And then finally, openness. And when I think of openness, I think of just having an open mind. When we come to the book of Romans, oftentimes we come with our preconception and our preset ideas. And so we just automatically read those into the text. Now, 
I don't have a problem with coming to the text with some ideas of what it says, but I do need to have an open mind to let the text force me to a different conclusion if that's what the text intends to do. And so I need to have a mind that's open to seeing a passage or an idea in Romans differently than I've seen it before. And then the other aspect of openness is an open heart. What does God want to do in my heart? What does God want to do in my life? Do I have a heart that's open, that says, God, what changes do you want to make in me as I reflect on this book? And if we will keep those things in mind as we go forward, I think we may find the book of Romans dropping in our own life like a bombshell. And maybe some changes take place that need to take place. Okay, next week, chapter one.